Welcome to the Governance Podcast at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. I'm Hannah Kleider from the Department of Political Economy, and today I will be talking to Professor Jenna Bednar, who is Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan and Research Professor at the Institute for Social Research. Um, her research focuses on the theoretical underpinnings of the stability of federal states. Her most recent book, The Robust Federation, demonstrates how complementary institutions maintain and adjust the distribution of authority between national and state governments. Her book was recently recognized by the APSA with the Martha Durthwick Best Book Award for its lasting contribution to the study of federalism. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jenna. Jenna, it's a great pleasure to be here. Great. So I wanted to start with a policy-relevant question about the usefulness of federalism. So the topic of federalism has gained a lot of attention, not only uh, by academics, uh, but also by international institutions and policymakers more generally, um, that often recommend federalism as a solution um, to a number of issues in conflict-ridden and heterogeneous societies. So what do you think makes federalism so attractive in these contexts? I think that, especially in, in cases where there's a diverse society mm -hmm. that is clustered geographically, right, where... Um, Uh, people intuitively think about federalism, mm -hmm. and the reason why they think about federalism for these societies as a system of governance is because if these diverse clusters of people have different goals or mm -hmm. different preferences mm -hmm. than others, then you can decentralize mm -hmm. policymaking authority let them set policy according to their own preferences. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, that might diffuse some tension that otherwise would have to be managed by the central government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but in a way, sort of the reasons why it makes federalism so attractive are often um, at the same time the reasons that sort of raise conflict and, and tensions in these societies. That's kind of the, the paradox of, of federalism. So do you think your theory and your work more generally can help us explain sort of recent events in Europe and, and beyond? Well, we, you nailed it, Hannah. Maybe we can pause for a second and just think about what you called, and I love that, mm -hmm. that you called it that, the paradox mm -hmm. of federalism, that on the one hand, you would adopt this federal system mm -hmm. because you're trying to diffuse this tension, but then at the same time, what you're doing is kind of recognizing the right to organize and express themselves um, of these differing populations. Mm -hmm. So what I like to think about is are these boundaries of federalism, that is, as you, and we're not talking about now a mm -hmm. geographic boundaries between the units, but the um, legal or policy-making boundaries between the national government and the regional governments, mm -hmm. and how those boundaries are enforced, mm -hmm. right? Because as quite naturally, the regional governments are going to try to assert themselves um, maybe in ways that generate externalities mm -hmm. for other regions or push against what the national government Uh, is doing, and at the same time, the national government uh, could encroach 
upon yeah. the authorities of the state government. So this is a, a, a real tension. Yeah. It's, you, you can't just stop when you're, uh, you know, writing a constitution with yeah. there, we've set, we've written down the rules, you know, national government, you get these things to do, state government, you get these things to do. Um, that's only the beginning mm-hmm. of solving So now behave accordingly. <laughs> right. So now be nice. Yeah. So, um, and that's really the puzzle that I, um, the first half of the puzzle that I, I tried to unpack in the, the book that you referenced is um, how, what makes that authority boundary meaningful, mm-hmm. that it is uh, sharp enough that um, if there is encroachment or shirking, mm-hmm. um, that there will be a consequence mm-hmm. for breaking the rules, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I uh, the rules themselves probably ought to change over time mm-hmm. as um, as societies change, as what we want or expect from our government changes. We ought to be flexible. So this is a real challenge. How do you have rules that are meaningful, but at the same time flexible? Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, so the way I thought what I worked it out in the book is to think, you know, the, the natural thing you think about, it, well, that's fine. Well, let's let the court mm-hmm. decide if you violated the rules, right? But that doesn't solve, a, 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 raises a couple of issues first. What if the court itself is captured either by state interests mm-hmm. or more likely the national government's mm-hmm. interests, mm-hmm. right? So the states don't trust it. Mm-hmm. This was, if we were, were to talk about Canadian history, this was a real issue yeah. for the Canadians, for the mm-hmm. Quebecois. Um, uh, but at the same time, who is the court as an authority mm-hmm. to say um, how those rules should change over time, right? Yeah. So, uh, so thinking about the court as an important umpire, mm-hmm. referee, if you will, of mm-hmm. these boundaries, but maybe not the only one. So then we want to think in terms of a set of safeguards of those boundaries, judicial, the the court, but uh, also um, uh, um, different ways that you can structure the national government to kind of break apart uh, um, majoritarian interests Mm -hmm. and, and encourage representation of the regional governments, even as the national government is setting policy, Mm -hmm. um, the uh, people themselves, maybe, uh, it, you know, it takes an awful lot for them mm-hmm. to rise up and, and say, I object on, um, to what's happening here on federalism grounds. But um, but sometimes their objections are as if, uh, you know, to policy mm-hmm. is uh, uh, can be expressed in terms of federalism. Um, and the states themselves may push back against one another um, and, can, I was calling it in the book intergovernmental retaliation. Mm-hmm. So there, and there, this is not meant to necessarily be exhaustive of all of the kinds of safeguards mm-hmm. that there might be, but just to encourage other scholars like you to think in terms of, gee, we can go beyond just thinking about what the court does mm-hmm. to manage these tensions and that there are all kinds of safeguards in a federal system that might make those boundaries meaningful and at the same same time allow us to review them and let them adjust. Um, that's very interesting. I really like this idea of retaliatory non-compliance by sort of the states vis-a-vis the, the federal government. Can you give an example, a recent example of how that would work? Oh yeah, there's uh, 
So as an American, uh, you know, there's all kinds of uh, things that are consuming us these days. Uh, I don't know um, when anyone might be listening to this podcast, but currently uh, there's an impeachment investigation Mm -hmm. that's um, consuming Congress, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 looking into the actions of our president uh, vis-a-vis inviting foreign powers into um, politics. um, helping him, uh, you know, get dirt on, if you will, uh, his political rivals. At the same time, there's another thing going on that for people like you and me who love federalism is happening in the United States. It's kind of under the radar. And this is uh, a war almost um, between uh, Washington, the Trump administration specifically, and California. Mm-hmm. And so there are all kinds of ways that California is pushing against the federal authority uh, as it's kind of developing new policies. Um, And the way it's pushing against uh, the Trump administration has uh, made President Trump quite angry. Um, It may have started or be um, or. Uh, really become most salient when they uh, pushed against um, the administration's crackdown on um, uh, trying to round up those who are undocumented in our country. And uh, and what the administration did was uh, ask, uh, but really more command, states to help the federal government's um, uh, policing authorities uh, to identify undocumented people living in the country. Um, Yeah, ICE, exactly. And uh, California said, you know, we are not going to have our state employees engage in that activity. The reason that they gave was that policing powers depend so much on community trust and uh, and by doing this, you're disrupting community trust. So they said this is actually at odds with our own goals in terms of provision of these, uh, you know, um, very important uh, services uh, to maintain order in our society. And so we will not engage in that. And so this has been uh, become known as sanctuary cities, right, where there are regions that have said. And the whole state of California has said, we will not participate in this. So this is um, uh, this is a rejection of the policy. But as it's doing that, this is, you, you know, the retaliatory noncompliance. We disagree and we will not participate. Yeah. And uh, it's been quite gutsy of California to Very. do that. <laughs> and the reason why it's gutsy is... Because it doesn't end there, yeah. right? So all of our states depend on the federal yeah. government for a lot of financial Funding. support. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so more and more, the federal government is using its spending powers, which has been acknowledged as a legitimate use by the uh, Supreme Court. So using its spending powers to say, oh, if you don't fall in line and agree to our assertion of authority, we're going to take away money. 
Yeah. Um, so it is, it's, it's gutsy and it's expensive uh, yeah. for them to do this. And it's so interesting to see how it has turned around with the states being a safeguard against the sort of democratic federal government to now them being a safeguard against the Republican federal government. Isn't it? Yes. Yes, it right. is very interesting. Uh, and with climate change, you're seeing sort of uh, more or less the oh, same yes. thing with exactly. states taking the lead. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. The uh, um, So what's happening right now with the battle between the Trump administration and California over vehicle emission standards. Mm-hmm. So, um, so going back, Actually, well back in time, the earliest um, uh, innovations in terms of trying to regulate uh, factories and other sources of pollution um, all happened within the states. So this is going back to the 1950s and 1960s. And it happened, like in my own state of Michigan, um, from our public health commissioner who said, Oh my goodness, these emissions are making people very sick. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this is a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is regulate these emissions to keep people healthy. And uh, so within the state of Michigan, long before the federal government, uh, long before, maybe 10 or 15 years before the federal government got on board, um, the uh, state was innovating. California also was... was, um, developing new policies to protect um, the health of its citizens. And in particular, in, in California, the, the concern was over particulates, right? So there's all kinds of, mm-hmm. of uh, pollutants um, that are generated. But in California, in the, especially in the L.A. Basin, so the L.A. Basin is a very particular um, um, geography that interacts with the atmosphere in a way. So it's this basin that has the ocean to the west, and then it's mountains. uh, Mountains, Mm -hmm. exactly. So it kind of holds in any pollution. And and then there's the sun, and in in chemical ways that I don't fully understand, uh, the... um, there was a professor at Caltech who, who uh, took a, a year off to, to do this research on um, why is the L.A. Basin so bad in terms of uh, smog, right? Yeah. The smog of the L.A. Basin. And it had to do with the sun also, you know, so it's, yeah. it's this enclosed area. And then the sun, in some senses, um, uh, just augmented this uh, um, uh the effect of these pollutants. And so it's uh, like a, a perfect storm of circumstances that made LA particularly nasty and was making people very, very sick. Mm-hmm. So um, when the federal government um, in um, the early 70s started regulating um, uh, to protect the environment with the Clean Air Act and then the Clean Water Act, with the Clean Air Act, it gave California an exemption. So when the federal government sets a standard, mm-hmm. uh, according to our constitution, it can preempt uh, state activity in that area. Um, they uh, set a standard, but they allowed California to exceed that standard. So to set a policy oh, that was I even see, more yeah. strict. Um, 
So it had this longstanding exemption. This led to all kinds of changes to vehicle standards because California was working on reducing particulates. That's the mm-hmm. stuff coming out of tailpipes um, for autos. And um, so pushed to have um, the shift from leaded gasoline to mm-hmm. unleaded mm-hmm. gasoline and the creation of the catalytic converter, which is a way of taking that unleaded gasoline and, mm-hmm. again, back to chemistry, somehow creating higher octane, so more power mm-hmm. uh, when you were taking away the lead, all in the interest of protecting the environmental qual- air quality in L.A. Well, what happened is the rest of the country sort of had to follow California standards. Not that California was setting policy for anybody else, but because the auto manufacturers are saying, wait, California is a huge market. part yeah. of our market, right? And so we could make cars just for California, but that would be really expensive to have two separate production lines. Yeah. So we will meet California standards uh, everywhere. So... Yeah. That's so interesting. So since we're already talking about policy experimentation, um, that's kind of an important part of federalism research, research that we think that state governments should take the lead in experimenting um, with new policies. So what is a good way of the federal government to nudge these regional governments Uh, into experimenting? Yeah, exactly. So sometimes... So state experimentation is not always a good thing. We yeah. should we should that's true. Um, <laughs> although the talk that I'll give today yeah. is going to praise it, uh, uh, but we, because we can certainly learn an awful lot about it uh, from state experimentation. Sometimes though, states won't experiment. So going back to this case of California and the emission standards, everybody benefited from that because everybody's air was cleaner. Thanks to California uh, focusing in on how, what could be done to reduce um, um, uh, tailpipe emissions and demanding of the auto manufacturers that they um, have their engineers work on that problem. So um, California was willing to take on that burden, mm-hmm. but you know Michigan certainly wasn't doing it. I mean, this was really affecting yeah. you know Michigan directly. Um, other states weren't doing it. So sometimes what the federal government has done is offer incentives, switching gears, not thinking about clean air, but instead thinking about um, uh, welfare. Okay, so for a long while, our welfare policy in the United States was AFDC, Mm -hmm. Aid to Families with Dependent Children. And this is a cost-sharing program where states would um, set kind of um, some sort of standard uh, that would create a cost for the program based upon the number of um, people who were in need within the state. And then the states would uh, uh, pay only a portion of the cost of that program, and the federal government would pay uh, the other portion. So the amount that the states were paying, um, and it was a function of really how well off a state was, but it was somewhere between a third to half of the cost of the program. The rest of it was paid for by the state by the federal government. Well. The, fed, the states weren't innovating very much, right? And uh, welfare, while we had a decline in the number of poor, um, uh, sort of after the Johnson era of, you know, this great society program, 
it tapered off, mm-hmm. right? And we we weren't solving this problem of poverty. Mm-hmm. And so the federal government, this is in the 1990s, and the, um, the Republicans coming in and um, taking control of Congress, they said, hey, let's encourage the states to innovate. Mm-hmm. Well, how are the states going to innovate? It's kind of costly to develop a new program. What we'll do is we'll shift that funding scheme from being this matching grant Mm -hmm. program to being one of block grants. So we will say to the states, um, if you, um, we're going to give you a set amount of money, and then you work out how you're going to relieve Mm -hmm. poverty, and they they set some standards, um, minimal, um, Standards, uh, they said. But if you if you figure out a welfare policy that reduces costs, then you can keep the savings. You can keep a hundred percent of those savings. Whereas under AFDC and under these matching grants, if the states had developed some new policy, they're only keeping thirty cents, say, or mm-hmm. maybe fifty cents of every dollar saved. Mm-hmm. Right. So block grants are seen as a way to incentivize. Um, innovation, which mm. is sometimes needed because um, without that uh, target or that um, this kind of uh, big prize available to the states for uh, trying something new, they might not try. Okay. Well, going back to your sort of more general work about the principles of federalism, yeah. um, you talk about sort of institutional design. You say you don't want to give one ideal sort of federal system, but you have some sort of design principles. Now, if you were to give policymakers some advice on what the key design principles are, what would you, what would you tell them? Yeah, it's such a, I'm so glad you asked me that question uh, because, again, people want to, people want to say, oh, it's fine. All I have to do is have this set of safeguards Mm -hmm. and things will be cool. Well, the safeguards are only, as a system, are only effective if, because everyone is imperfect, Mm -hmm. right? Like the the courts could be, like, as I said earlier, could be biased in favor of the federal government, Um, uh, there are all all kinds of reasons to to think that there might be infections or the uh, the fragmentation at the federal level. So in the United States, where we have um, a uh, separation of powers between the executive, the judiciary, and the legislature, and then even within the legislature, it's bicameral, right? So all kinds of fragmentation going on there. But the fragmentation is only useful if there are con- Uh, there's competition, mm-hmm. right? If there are competing uh, ideologies, partisanships, or for federalism, um, com- uh, competing visions mm-hmm. about how uh, to um, the extent to which uh, we should pay attention to one region's interests versus another. Mm-hmm. If all of those branches of government mm-hmm. at the federal level are uh, held by the same Uh, ideology mm-hmm. or have the same vision, then in terms of a safeguard, it's a failure, right? It's going to be very mm-hmm. biased. So that's why we need uh, redundancy. Then we'd want to turn to another safeguard. But what if they're all held by the same authority, right? Um, and then that's a problem. So what we need in order to have 
robustness in this system mm-hmm. is for these safeguards to fail for different reasons, mm-hmm. right? We need independence in failure. That is, so the so what I guess what I would rec- make a, in terms of a recommendation to those who would design a system is to say, okay, what is the likelihood that these different safeguards would all be held by the same um, authority or someone, uh, those who share the same vision. If that is likely, then you probably want to find yet another authority to introduce to break that apart. That's so interesting. Actually, it, it sort of reminds me of an idea that was put forward by, by Jan Erk mm. about sort of uh, linguistic divisions kind of generating these different um, ideas to some extent. If we think about Quebec in, in Canada or Catalonia in Spain, and I was just wondering what you thought about this idea that um, if federations are linguistically homogeneous, they will tend towards centralization. Mm. If they're heterogeneous, they will tend towards decentralization. Is this something that you have observed or is that uh, something that you would share? I think it's such a, an, an interesting observation of his. And, you know, we think about what role in this argument is is language playing, right? Language is uh, like our most essential coordinating device. <laughs> we only come to understand one another um, because of language. Mm-hmm. And so those of us who share a language may for sure have some other identity characteristics mm-hmm. that we share, right? So it may be that language is a good way of... Um, of saying, aha, you who speak my language probably share my views. And those people over there who share a different language, who speak a different language, probably have a different set of ideas. So it's a great coordinating device. Mm -hmm. Um, If you can coordinate your activities and you can have confidence that somebody shares your interests, then you're much like more likely to be able to organize effectively and to resist that encroachment by the central government. Mm-hmm. So in multilingual societies, mm-hmm. if, the, if language um, corresponds to the political mm-hmm. uh, boundaries, which it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. have to, but if it does, then that offers some... Um, it makes it a lot easier to organize to resist the federal government because it, if it's a system where the federal government holds the purse strings, mm-hmm. right, is is in charge of most of the finances, mm-hmm. it's really hard to defend yourself. Um, you say, yes, I would prefer it another way. And as we were talking about before, yeah, but the federal yeah, government yeah. can say, yeah, well, fine, then you can't have any money. Yeah. <laughs> and um, But anyway, so, so you do need these coordinating mechanisms. I think language might play that role. Of course, we don't have that in the United States. We have, a, we have language diversity, but it isn't... Um, it isn't uh, geographically clustered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't have that in Germany either or Austria. Or exactly. Australia. And the argument is, right, that uh, Germany has been tending towards a more centralized uh, federation than perhaps uh, Canada or Belgium. Yeah. Um, yeah, and right. So and they, I, I would say yeah. it's because there, there are other reasons to centralize. You may not need to be decentralized, right? It is a it, it is a costly system, mm-hmm. um, but if you had linguistic differences, it 
it may have made that process more uh, less likely. So I, I think there's a lot to um, to be said with his observation there in the theory. It's a great one. Okay. Well, um, I wanted to ask you a sort of uh, what what do you think will be your next stage? What's the next stage in your research agenda? You know, so we've been talking a lot about uh, policy mm-hmm. and about the states with having these new ideas. Mm-hmm. The uh, the talk that I'm giving today and what I'm writing on right now is um, kind of a pushback against the reigning um, way that we talk about federalism, which is um, what I call an allocative theory of federalism. That is, because there are these diverse interests that are geographically clustered, um, we devolve authority so that people can set different policies. But that's kind of an inconvenience. Mm-hmm. That's a bother, right? Like, if people weren't different, we wouldn't need to do this. Mm-hmm. We could solve things much more efficiently at the central level, right? So federalism is, uh, is, is an inconvenience. Diversity is an inconvenience, right? What I am writing about right now is thinking about diversity as being very useful. So that as we have these uh, diverse uh, expressions of policy interests Mm -hmm. at the state level and the states trying out new policies, it introduces information into the system. That is, we can learn. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking about California and pushing on tailpipe emissions, the rest of the country learned, um, uh, and uh, and that's a really positive thing. So I can think about federalism as a way that you can, as a well, I'm calling it a problem-solving mechanism, mm-hmm. as a problem, uh, as a way for. Um, a policy, a polity to discover new policies that it might not have thought about just at the central level, right? That you yeah. need this exploration that's happening at the state level. Yeah, that's uh, that's a very nice view of diversity. I think one that not everybody uh, would always share. Yeah, but that sort of uh, offers a very nice sort of, um, sort of analysis of what are the benefits of having different views. It's exactly right. Uh, Uh, Perfect. Well, uh, we have a little bit more time, so I wanted to ask you, how did you become interested in this area of research? Oh, in the diversity? Diversity, federalism, sort of comparative institutions. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Those are three different areas. (laughs) Three. You can can pick and choose. (laughs) Uh, Well, no, no, no. It's all really good. Um, So uh, with diversity... Um, and my husband, Scott Page, uh, works on diversity, and he is the one who got me thinking about diversity as uh, and diverse perspectives as improving um, the group problem solving. Mm-hmm. So that's the his theoretical contribution. And I said, hmm, that makes a lot of sense for federalism. Now, federalism, why do I care about federalism? This goes back to when I was an undergraduate uh, at the, I was, although I'm on faculty at the University of Michigan now, I was an undergrad at Michigan. And federalism essentially was dead in the United States. There was just, this is the 1980s and nothing was happening at the state level, nothing at all. Uh, but I was an intern up in the Canadian House of uh, Commons up in, in Parliament, and federalism was so 
and fascinating, right? This is, this is of course, everything was happening with Quebec uh, at the time, but even Western provinces were asserting themselves, like, you know, resisting the kind of Ontarian dominance um, in the system. And so I came back to the United States and I said, I don't think federalism is dead. <laughs> uh, and I started working on it. And then, thank goodness, uh, um, around the same time, the Rehnquist Court uh, also started recognizing the significance of the states in the system. So it was a lot of luck that, <laughs> that I uh, got started on a, on a topic that um, then became kind of policy relevant um, over the next decade or so. And then you asked about comparative institutions. So I, um, as a graduate student, spent most of my time actually in economics, uh, maybe um, a little bit more than in uh, political science. And in economics, I was fascinated with this idea that um, you can shape hum human behavior by structuring the rules, by changing the incentives, changing the information. Um, so I, uh, you know, be studied a lot of game theory um, and game theory in political science is just that's what you do when you do comparative institutions it's just you you modify the rules a little bit um, and see how it changes behavior whether it's by individuals or it's by whole populations and what they choose yeah. so I think it's um, kind of at the core of what we do as political scientists is think about gee if, if we change the institutions that govern us we change what we can achieve as a society. Wow, that's a very nice <laughs> ending sentence. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us, Jenna. Um, I'm very much looking forward to your talk. Um, to all our listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Governance Podcast. Um, to learn more about our upcoming podcasts and events at the Center for the Study of Governance and Society, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. In the meantime, we look forward to seeing you again soon on the Governance Podcast. Thank you.